Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is where you say you're not a lawyer, right? I am also not a lawyer. <laughs> but you play one on a podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with all the disclaimers that, that tim can add in yes this this advice is provided as is without any warranty of any kind express or implied including but not limited to the warranty or merchantability so hey everybody, welcome to episode 124 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All right, so Jaime, you got some follow-up. This is going to be the follow-up show, so here, let's hit, hit us with some follow-up, Jaime. Yeah, so way, way back a long time ago when the Apple Watch first came out, we talked about its ability to help the elderly. I don't remember if we talked about that when the Apple Watch itself came out or if it was sort of like speculation after we had sort of seen the announcement. That was Carol's great idea to help the elderly by having them use Apple Watches for this kind of stuff. Yeah, and we talked about the fact that it would be super great because it would be something that they would actually want to use and not be like, you know, this sad thing that's like this symbol of shame for them, right? It's like, <laughs> sure, it is helping uh, to to you know, do monitoring for them and everything, but it also is useful in their own lives, right? Like they could use it to listen to this very podcast that they wanted to. So one follow-up I had is that there's an article here on 95Mac about a crowdfunding going on for an app called Fall Call, which is being done by a trauma surgeon and an emergency medical doctor where they're trying to create an Apple Watch app that will automatically detect when somebody has fallen and call for the level of help. So if you think about that new um, watchOS 3 like, you know, I'm in trouble kind of thing where you hold the button for a while. And then after a while, it says, oh, okay, well, we need to call somebody. Like, think about that situation where you, maybe you've fallen and you are just injured enough where you can't reach the other arm over to do that. I think that's what this will help fill the gap for, right? Like, there, there is specific equipment that people can wear that um, a lot of times they, quite frankly, don't want to wear because it it's either embarrassing or it's uncomfortable or whatnot. But something like an Apple Watch app is great because like, it may not cover all of those cases that happen, but if it helps, you know, 
some percentage of them, then you've helped reduce the number of, of uh, very serious accidents that don't go uh, you know, into recovery mode because somebody can't get there in time. Yeah, it's totally about dignity. Um, like my mom's in a, in a retirement home right now, and she has one of those buttons beside her, her uh, coffee table there she can push to call for help. Or And she has this thing she's supposed to wear around her neck. And Carol's uh, stepdad used to wear like a, it looked like a watch with a button on it. And they're really resistant to wear them because it's, it's, you know, it's kind of insulting to them, I think, right? And uh, so it's hard to teach them to do that. And and my only concern about, I mean, as I mentioned, Carol thought of the idea of, of using the Apple Watch to, when it, before it was coming out, to, to make an app for seniors to help them out in this kind of situations. But my experience with the elderly is that if they haven't sort of grown up with it, they're pretty resistant to, to adopt new things. Like I gave my mom an iPad once to hold on to and try to show her how to, you know, use, you know, email or whatever. And it just, she just, it wasn't going in her head at all. So... Um, so it was kind of, so it wasn't worth even trying to buy one because it would just kind of sit there. She can watch TV and she knows how to use the TV remote. That's kind of the limit of her tech, her tech knowledge. But, but I think a watch might make more sense because, you know, if, if the, my only caveat about it is that watch is so dependent on the phone, right? But, you know, mm-hmm. with Siri and automation, and I'll probably talk about this when I talk about uh, home later on, um, with the Siri, you know, automation for, you know, hey, Siri, do this and do that that may be something seniors could learn to do, right? As well as, it would be cool if, if Siri's trying to figure out what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, go to sleep, Siri. But yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough sell to get seniors to use this kind of thing. I mean, my mom has a cell phone, but she keeps it in her purse turned off all yeah. the time. <laughs> so there's really no point of her having it. But but uh, but that's what she does. So I, I can't imagine her ever using something like this. It's just too but, new yeah. and too modern. Isn't it like I'm not saying it would be an easy sell, but it, at the very least, the the watch as like a gift is minimally useful at the very least as a watch, right? And if you set it up with with things that they might really care about, like you know, what's the day, uh, like the date of the day, and mm-hmm. also the um, temperature, like those are the things that have on the modular face. It's like, oh, okay, well, I may not use it for anything else, but at the very least, that is useful right and, and it doesn't change any paradigms uh kind of like the ipad i think in your example tim where like people used to wear watches so she might be accustomed yeah to exactly that. yeah like I, I don't know like if the phone is always off like uh i know the apple watch can connect by itself to wi-fi but i don't think you can make any calls so i don't i don't know how this will work if it's voice over ip calling that maybe they're still okay but uh telephony you, you can you can initiate calls with with your watch. I, you While know, the phone know. is off, though, I don't think it. I don't think it does like voice over IP type stuff. Uh, yeah, 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's one one unfortunate thing about the watch is that, like I said, it, that's dependent on a phone being on and charged and all that kind of stuff. That said, like you know, when I first took my mom to the home back in 2007, and, I, and we got her like a wireless phone, and I showed her how to use it, and I just for the sake of you know science, I said, well, let me just put on speakerphone here, and and then I can show you how to you know make calls and stuff like that, and. To this day, she still puts it on speakerphone to call people, like <laughs> you know. But but that said, I mean, like yeah, if if if, so, if and a lot of us, you know, Mac users are now. I mean, I've I've been in Mac user groups for when I was first starting out in this stuff. There were guys who were in their fifties and sixties already using Macs. So I mean, there there is a I think generationally, we're gonna, there's going to be more and more tech in people's lives, right? And and as you demonstrated last week with Google Home, that may be another facility that that people could learn to. 
learn to do. Like you know, we have we have sticky notes on the wall at my mom's uh, apartment on how to use the how to use the the Rogers TV and how to use the cable box, and we could just sort of say you know have a, a board that says say hey Siri. Do you have a sign, a big sign that says, this is your password, and then the password? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, like that kind of stuff. But you know what I mean? Like, like have it, have it, you know, make it, make it instructional if, 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 if somebody's you know, open to that kind of idea, right? So, yeah. But yeah, yeah. you're right, Mark. I, my mom's cell phone is in her drawer in her house, and I pay, you know, the, I pay the bill every month. And yeah. I just, every, I cringe every time, right? So Yeah, it's unfortunate, but oh well. You got to turn it into, like, the kids and grandkids like funnel yeah. of like this is the, where you're going to get all the videos and pictures from so if you have it on you can see them when they come in and you can yeah you can enjoy it yeah kind of use it as the carrot wasn't mm. there a movie a couple of years ago about a, an elderly guy um with a robot or something there was some sort of story about this guy he was really resistant to having this little uh, home you know mm-hmm. assist like health aid or robot it was i know it's a work of fiction and stuff like that but that's kind of sort of where i think this technology is going you know um, with Google Home and oh, sorry, I was going to say I think that was Robot and Frank, if I'm not mistaken. I saw that movie. Yeah, it's, like it's, that, it's yeah. really good. They go on a, a very interesting caper together. So it's interesting that you that you mentioned uh, having the yeah you know, the the pictures of the grandkids or whatever showing up every day because that was the the original premise behind uh, an app I worked on in a startup I did a couple of years ago uh, called Relive. Uh, it was so that you could share your photos with people like grandparents or whatnot, uh, but. Unfortunately, since we targeted grandparents instead of targeting teenagers, uh, Instagram took off and, and our company did not. <laughs> so maybe maybe grandparents are not the right audience. Yeah, it, it, for, <laughs> for broad adoption, it would definitely be kind yeah. of hard to, to use that, that niche. For yeah. That. yeah. Yep. Now, going back to this, uh, this Kickstarter, I, I think it's actually a cool idea, a really cool idea, but... I wonder if it'll be successful because they're trying to raise $180,000 uh, and really all you get out of it is you're listed as a patron of the technology. It doesn't get you a copy of the app or anything like that because you have to get that from Apple anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the $300 watch, yeah. Well, right, you have to buy the watch too. Yeah, yeah. Right, and the normal caveats go um with anything that's Kickstarter based, I've uh, certainly been burned by them to, to varying degrees. So, um, you know, always keep that in mind in case you were thinking about contributing to this. Yeah, that's true. I got a couple of follow up items here about uh, Jaime's piece last week about Google Home. Um, and that just relating to Canada, apparently, Google Home is coming to Canada sometime in 2017. Um, there was a um, post here from AndroidHeadlines.com talking about that. And uh, does it say when-ish? My internet's really slow today. You know, that's considered a basic you know, necessity or, or right or, or, or uh, service. Uh, the basic service, that's what I was looking for nowadays in Canada. What's that? The uh, broadband. I was just reading about that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. CRTC or something similar? Oh yeah, yeah. That's our yeah Canadian mm-hmm. tele telecom and something commission. Yeah, um, and as well as uh, um, Google Home coming to Canada, there's a second piece I got here is about Amazon Echo. Somebody's written a piece on how to on playableliving.com on how to uh, 
you configure Amazon Echo to work in Canada, I guess. You, and they're sort of saying, you know, you fake it by setting up a U.S. account, I think, as well, right? So we're getting a friend's address or something like that. But uh, but it is possible if you really, really wanted to try Amazon Echo in Canada, you can. And there's a complete guide here. Yeah, Ooh. some of these are kind of difficult, like setting up your location as close as possible uh, to your Canadian location within the U.S. border. <laughs> So, like, for you guys, I don't know, what, like, like Niagara Falls? or, or no. Oh. Who, who's yeah. the closest? Chicago? Forget uh, exactly well, no. Toronto is right, we're right across the lake from Rochester, really, Like, but that's as a crow flies, right? But, um, right. yeah, Buffalo, you know, New York, or Niagara Falls, New York, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and I mean... Detroit's probably the closest major city, right? Um, yeah, I guess in terms of major, major cities, I suppose yeah. it is, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what constitutes an American major city in the United States. Buffalo is pretty big to us. So yeah. yeah, there's always a fire in the warehouse in Buffalo. So I don't know if you heard heard that story. Our American channels like CBC, CBS, and ABC and NBC are um, affiliates out of Buffalo, and uh, the news is always, "Oh, there's a fire in the warehouse." Blah 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 down the street. And, yeah. and I worked with a woman from Buffalo a couple of years ago, and she sort of said, "Yeah, I just thought that was like that everywhere." <laughs> <laughs> So you guys are getting a lot of uh, Buffalo Bills broadcasts then coming over from the American side. Yeah, then. I, I guess so. Yeah, I, I really don't follow the football, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, because we, we get all the games that you guys get as well. Like you know, all the stuff you guys were watching on your Thanksgiving, we got to see that up here as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, way more than just code, as it were. Um, yeah. So uh, you have another um, follow-up on digital assistance, I mean? Yeah. So we talked about the Amazon Echo and the Google Home um there's one oh, coming creepy yeah <laughs> well it depends how you look at it right it's definitely very culturally japanese and, and it's a japanese company called vinclu that is creating this thing called gate box um that you can think of it as being sort of like an echo or a home except this one has a um a little display area like a little holographic type display a little tube that has within it a um, anime style, like Hatsune Miku Vocaloid art style assistant that's kind of more intended to be um, almost like a homemaker. Is, is sort of like the intention. Like if you, if you read the article that we'll have in the show notes and if you look at the video, it's more than just the reactive stuff. It's also like text messaging to it. Like, oh, when are you coming home? Oh, you're coming home then. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure, you know, that the robotic vacuums have cleaned up the house and I'll make sure the temperature and the lights are ready when you come home sort of thing. Um, it, it's definitely more um, like a, a social engagement and interaction sort of, you know, whole filler than the echo and, and the home are, which are much more just like, Oh, what would you like me to do today? Okay, great. I'll do that. This one is almost like, having like a spouse type figure uh for these folks and it's it's not cheap apparently um so it's 321,000 ish yen which translates to $2,700 US mm-hmm. um and i'm guessing all of that budget went towards the uh display technology it's uh, it's way more expensive than uh, the normal thing um yeah. it kind of doesn't surprise me in a way that considering japan has a lot of this like um, virtual spouse type technology, right? There's, you know, like the, 
Nintendo 3DS um, characters that people date or marry uh, over there in Japan. And there's a lot of, um, like, robotic partner type stuff that, that's being worked on over there. So this is kind of a, like a different case that uh, I thought was kind of more uh, of a novelty than anything because it's quite a, it's quite a high price. And uh, it did make me think of um, Microsoft's entry into this list because they could do this thing as well it, with like hardly any extra work if they were to license the display technology because they already have their assistant called Cortana, which is based on the Cortana virtual assistant from the Halo games. And they already have a 3D model. So they just put that in there. I'm sure it'd be great. I'm, I'm sure there'd be tons of Halo fans that would buy the, you know, $2,700 Halo 5 Super Ultra Edition one that comes with the Cortana assistant in it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, if you can skin it, I think for sure, yeah. Yep, you could have Princess Leia in there if you like. Yeah. <laughs> this one has like a whole name. Her, her name is Azuma Hikari. And there's a whole website that sort of describes who she is. She's not technically like a robotic assistant. She's um, a person from a entirely different dimension who has sort of become trapped in our universe through the gate box. And that's kind of the whole premise for it. It's like <laughs> apparently going to be a manga series. And, and, if, and I'm almost certain like an anime series at some point, if it gets popular enough. Yeah. Well, it's like that creepy black, black mirror episode. I was telling you guys about, you know, the spoilers for people who haven't seen it yet, but about, you know, how you, they were shrinking people in to put them, taking their consciousness and putting them down into um, devices that would then control the home that the person lived in. Very strange stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a great show, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, so my the next one is, uh, for me, actually, I was inspired by Jaime's comment about uh, home and Apple and all that kind of stuff. And so we have, uh, last Christmas, I bought Carol some uh, Hue lights. Um, and, you know, Xavier, our grandson, has been having great fun playing with them. Um, and what, so I, I had the home app on my um, my iPad since I've installed the beta version, but I never really got past the sort of the, the leap that I had to do. to I had to turn on two-factor authentication on my on my Apple ID account um, to be able to use it because and now I can sync it across my multiple iOS devices. But I now have the home app configured to uh, set up the lights, and so I can set them, set timers on them. Um, I can set, I can turn them on at at um, midnight. You know, if you're in, if you're watching a movie, you can sort of dim the lights by hitting movie mode. You can set up different scenes and stuff like that within Home Home Kit. But as well, um, and uh, yeah, I'll talk about this now. I also have a Nest, and one of my things I was resistant about it is I did I didn't buy an Echo B thermostat, which is also HomeKit enabled, but I, ha- I bought a Nest before when they first came out. And I bought my Nest before Google bought Nest away from, out from underneath us. But there is a technology called HomeBridge that you can run on a, like I have a, a small mini server down here in the basement. And so I set up HomeBridge on it, and you, it basically runs on Node.js and create support and, and, and has supports um, HomeKit as well. So you can configure your home your home environment, your, your house, whatever you, to control your Nest thermostat as well, and then presumably your other Nest devices as well through that. And it's just a little bit of a coding hack. There's a, a link here in the, in the show notes on how to go in and set that up if you want to play around with it. Um, you can you basically run it on the command line, but uh, and you have to run it on a, on a Mac that's going to be up all the time kind of thing, right? And yeah, so I've now got you know my my lights set to turn on at sunset and and turn off at midnight, let's say, and 
that kind of stuff. So we have we currently have a lot of the old mechanical home automation, like we have timers on our lights and stuff like that, so they go on and off at certain times. So if we, so when you come down into the into the bathroom in the morning and it's it's you know standard time in the winter and it's dark up here, right? So you want to have the lights on and you want the floor starting to heat and that kind of stuff. So um, Tim, did you ever use that X10 stuff? Was that available in Canada? Uh, I don't know about X10, but but um, I've also been looking. At, there's a lot of HomeKit stuff still available at Best Buy and stuff like that, and, and Home Depot, and where you can get switches for your walls that are and and they all have like a they use that Wi-Fi net that we were talking about to uh, connect. And then and what I bought Carol for Christmas this this year, and I, I, it's not a spoiler for now because we just had our our Christmas gift giving yesterday. Um, I bought her um, an August lock for the front door that opens the deadbolt. Right, um, it replaces the inside handle on the deadbolt. It's it's kind of big, but and you can you can turn it to manually open and close the door. But it does things like you can I can mail people a key, and then they'll be able to come and and uh, from their phone they'll be able to unlock our our front door. Um, as well, we can you know um, if it, did I forget to turn lock the door? You can actually go into the app and see if the door is locked or not, and that kind of stuff. So, and I believe. Yeah, I can't remember what I was going to say. But, yeah, again, that's also hooked into the HomeKit thing as well. So you can just sort of say, you know, hey, it's nighttime. And, oh, this is where I want to go with this is. So Jaime said last week that um, he would totally buy something from Apple if they had it. Well, they do. It's called Siri. <laughs> and it runs. you can run it from your Apple TV. You can run it from your iOS devices. I can even run it from my watch. I could say to my, I could say, hey, Siri, dim the lights and and uh then you know the home kit will kick in and, and dim the lights as well and most apps that are home kit enabled also have siri integration in them so we do have the similar kind of things i guess as what google home is doing just not sort of in one cohesive package interesting I, i'm <laughs> pretty impressed that this stuff um works just as it is I, I just assumed that the home kit stuff all had to be certified in order for things to connect but it's kind of cool that, that somebody came up with this yeah, the Homebridge thing is kind of an interesting solution. Um, I, I had it running for a couple of days on my Nest, and it's still configured right now. But yeah, it's and it's once you've got your HomeKit set up and your your two-factor authentication turned on and you're syncing your keychain and all that kind of stuff has to be hooked in through iCloud. Um, knock on wood, that'll work continually. Um, Anyway, it goes. And, and what I don't understand, though, and, and, and if somebody's listening can, or yelling at their phone right now, they can tell me. I'm not sure if the timers are in the phone or 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 like in the iOS devices. Because I'm going to take my phone and my and my um, iPad to uh, Portugal next week. Um, but my do, do the lights have the program set up in them, and will they just automatically turn on and off, uh, or do they get the signal from the HomeKit? Curious, huh? Yeah, I guess it I guess it does depend on, on where these things come up. And, and before you had mentioned the um, the keychain piece, I was going to say, oh, if it's running on Node, then you could probably run it through Amazon's Lambda service if you if it was like an issue to have a, a device always running, because that would always oh, be interesting. Yeah, would always be there. But I don't I don't know how the the keychain handshake would work for that sort of thing. Yeah, there's. I mean, I was reading some things briefly as I was googling around. You know, uh, people are running Homebridge on Raspberry Pi and a few other things as well, right? So, um, but but I mean, uh, the Apple TV works with this stuff too. So I kind of wonder if uh, my Apple TV. I don't know about yours, but goes to sleep all the time. So I'm not sure if it's if it's playing a role in this as well. I I guess I have to go check my Apple TV see if it's if it's um, synced with my iCloud account. It's probably not. I think about it. So when you say yours, are you talking to Mark? Because I I don't have an Apple TV. I have a Roku Premiere Plus. 
You don't have an Apple TV developer I kit? I don't, I don't have one. No, I, I feel cheated. I went to that WWDC where that was supposed to come out. And had I known wow. there was going to be only a dollar, yeah, I would have had one. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a lottery, I think, right? We had to enter the lottery. Is that yeah, the year you no, got the ticket? No. You got the ticket. We all got the Apple TV instead. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. got the consolation prize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got neither, by the way. <laughs> oh, didn't, oh, you didn't know? Okay, nope. sorry. Hmm. But you have an Apple TV now, right? I did buy an Apple TV. Yes. yes. Yeah. So I've actually been using it for uh, NFL Sunday ticket. Yeah, I, use, I was using it for Netflix and um, mm-hmm. the the YouTube and all that kind of stuff, and for watching my Apple TV, Apple content on there as well. Do you use the Hey Siri on the remote, Mark? Or should I no, it again? I don't. I almost never use that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. But do you use it? I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think I ever did. Yeah, maybe maybe once or twice, you know, but uh, like maybe just uh, find an app or something. But yeah, do you actually use the remote anymore, or do you use the remote app on your phone? I use the remote app on my phone. I do as well. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. Yeah, it's much. I mean, I can be anywhere and just flip it on, and away it goes. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the having the the pop up keyboard instead of having to. Oh to, yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> to, you know, yeah, to zoom around, way better. Yeah, I just I think I installed something on my Apple TV the other day, but I can't remember what it was. Hmm. But here, let's turn it on and find out. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> let's turn it into a pick of the week. It's like, oh, look, here's a step yeah, I forgot yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. No, I think it may have been follow-up to what we were talking about last week about, um, and I'm curious, I'm going to turn my Apple TV on while we're talking. So it looks like you have another follow-up item about um, the Alexa and, and Tesla integration. Yeah, I was actually, I was telling somebody about the HomeKit uh, integration at work, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, some guy parked his car with it or something like that. And But it turned out the, po- the post is about, uh, he uses his Amazon Alexa, he he brings his car up to the drive, it goes into his house, and then says, Alexa or whatever, turn on, uh, park the car, and he opens up the garage door and drives the car in, and there's a video <laughs> there in the, in the lake as well. That was kind of crazy. I guess he's got a, yeah, Tesla's are self-driving, right, to a certain extent? They do have yes, that, but that maneuvering capability for like getting out of your garage or going into your garage. Like I don't own one, but that, that's what I've I think I've seen. Yeah, they did have somebody get killed using that thing. Really? A couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah. You didn't hear about this? Yeah, he was driving on the freeway using this self-drive mode. Yeah. Uh, and apparently that didn't work all that well, and he crashed into a truck and died. Huh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that story. I, I thought you meant. Um, it was at home, like oh, no, no, like no, it didn't stop and it, like ran into him or something. Okay, no, no, nope, nope. Yeah, oh, in in this article that that Tim is linked to, they mentioned there's like the guy admits that there's like some security issues here. Which, I mean, sure, I mean somebody like at your window could yell loud enough that the echo would pick it up through the window. But I think if you had some sort of pin system. Where it just prompted you for like, okay, what's your pin? It's like one, two, three, four. All right, great. And then it opens up. That would keep, you know, random kids and, and yeah. do wells across the street. As long as you don't yell it too loud in your house that you know, outsiders can hear it. Or if it had a little hardware dongle that would uh check for the presence of your, your key, you know, your keyless entry dongle in mm-hmm. your pocket. Yeah. Before it worked. Yeah. Yeah, now that you guys are saying this, I kind of wonder, like, if people are considering, I mean, the three big players here, four big players, if you include Microsoft, are considering voice print recognition because I guess these devices respond to anybody who says something in your home. Right. Like, you know, we're able, we're able to control Fouad's radio from here, right? 
<laughs> yeah, intentionally <laughs> or not, uh, we can do that. And it, like, I'm sure, I'm sure they're working on it. It must be a difficult enough problem to do to get it to be reasonably correct. Because as it is without that sort of filtering of like, well, I'm not convinced that this is actually Jaime's, should I respond or not? Um, you know, there's still enough placement issues in your house. Like, uh, unless you went crazy and you bought, you know, six of them, so you have one in like every room of the house sort of thing. Um, you can be far enough away where it may not hear you. Um, even if you're like in the same room because of conditions like, um, uh, like the dishwasher is, is on. Right. And that, that's pretty loud. So if the dishwasher and the washing machine and the dryer and, you know, your neighbor is running the lawnmower outside the house, like it may have some issues hearing you. Um, mm -hmm. so I can imagine that if you threw on top of that, a, okay, what's the confidence curve as to whether this is the right person or not? probably throws it a little bit for a loop it probably wasn't acceptable enough like you would have people like get rejected it's like oh sorry unrecognized users like what what are you talking about like i'm the only one here and like, oh well i guess i've got a little bit of a raspy voice you know i'm getting a little sick how does it deal with that well let's try a test hey siri call tim mitra which phone number for tim mitra mobile or <laughs> mobile all right, let's see. Good. Let's see if you get any calls uh, when the podcast airs. <laughs> yeah, first of all, you got to tell your Siri how to pronounce my last name properly. <laughs> what did What did she say? I, I actually wasn't. She said Mitra, which a lot of people say. Oh, Mitra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say too about the distance thing is a factor because I, I was con before the podcast I was configuring the uh, the three lights because I was I just downloaded a new version of Hue, but. There's a distance issue with because I've got my my uh, I guess it comes to the, the Philips comes with a puck like a base station kind of thing and uh, it's down it sits on top of my router right now and I was up on the third floor of the house and it was too far away for it to, to find the light so I had to bring the light down to the second floor so so that's another issue with all this wonderful technology stuff I I would have thought that maybe it, it hopped over the the wireless network but I guess it it goes from the 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 the, the, the hue puck to the actual lights as opposed to over the wi-fi network right uh yeah 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 I, I think you know as this stuff gets cheaper and cheaper you'll start seeing it integrated directly into houses and you'll end up with um your wi-fi router and any repeater stations that you have throughout the house will end up having this technology as part of it to sort of help bridge that gap of am I going to have service here or not in this one corner of the house? Like you, you don't think about it for electricity, right? You've got electricity in every room of your house, like at Pretty least much, one, yeah. at least one outlet and, and probably uh, at least a couple, maybe several in every room. So I, I think it'll get to that sort of point where it's just sort of everywhere in your home. Yeah. Well, that's, I think we talked about that a couple last week or two weeks ago with, with the um, devices that have the mesh technology, mesh network technology in them to spread the network throughout the house. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, speaking of self-driving cars, Mark, you have a follow-up item here. Yeah, we talked a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, about the fact that Uber had started testing driverless cars in the San Francisco area, and there were some issues coming up. Uh, there was one uh, video caught of an Uber running a red light while someone was starting to walk through the, the crosswalk or across the street. And, Luckily, it, you know, it wasn't close by, so there's no danger, but still, it's a pretty 
bad thing have happened. So ever since then, the state government uh, in California has been trying to shut, I think it's the state or maybe the city of San Francisco, uh, has been trying to get Uber to shut down that program, uh, basically saying they don't have the right permits and and uh, yeah, they don't have the right uh, legal basis to do this. And Uber's been saying, no, it's the same as anyone else testing a driverless car, like what Google does or whatever. So, so it's okay. But uh, finally today, sort of a real-time update, well, as of Wednesday afternoon, uh, Uber finally bra- uh, backed down and, and is, is stopping the, the program. So it's good mm-hmm. because there are safety issues. It's unfortunate because it's kind of a cool thing that we'd like. To, I think we'd all like to see it work. But if it's not ready yet, they, they have to take it off the streets. Yeah, yeah. And I think some folks I'd seen had mentioned it as being sort of a, a very similar problem for, for their testing purposes, right? Like where they've got a person, um, an, an engineer or test engineer of some sort, who's uh, hypothetically supposed to take over in that sort of situation where, hey, it didn't stop or it went the wrong direction and they can take manual control. Um, unfortunately, it's very similar to some of the issues that uh, airline pilots have struggled with is like as these things become much more automatic, um, it's harder for them to maintain the necessary uh, focus on the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, like those pilots for, what was it? Was it Northwest Airlines where they were doing something on their laptop and they um, they overshot the airport by like 30 minutes and had to turn around <laughs> and go back for like, like um, that sort of thing can, can happen you know in the air. I can only imagine if, you know, you've got a eight to 10 hour job where your whole job is to sit in there and, and sort of, you know, probably watch some sort of readouts and some sort of, uh, what sort of telemetry are you getting? And then be ready at a moment's notice for that one time out of, you know, a hundred thousand that it did the wrong thing. Like that would, and that's an instantaneous sort of decision sort of thing that you have to do. So I can, I can imagine how tough that focus would be. Yeah, but we we were driving out downtown. Carol came to pick me up right right down smack downtown. We never drive down there in rush hour, and it literally took us like an hour to drive, maybe a ten minute drive, just to get onto the highway. Meanwhile, courier bikes were skipping through, and people were changing lanes, you know, inappropriately. And she was just sort of saying, "I can't wait for these self driving cars to come along." But but it's you know like just but I, the point about the the, uh, the bike couriers just whipping through traffic. I mean, how is how is a self driving car supposed to protect itself against that, right? Yeah. Especially know? in a place like San Francisco, where for some of these steep hills, you're driving up one side of the hill, you can't see what's going on on the other side of the hill. I mean, That's it's true, it's yeah. literally blocked. It's so steep, and and so if, so if the self driving car is just kind of going over the hill without looking, and someone's riding a bike across the street, then bam, bad news. Yeah, it kind of. It kind of also. I mean, I've always imagined that you know, as I'm thinking about it now, that maybe there has to be some sort of mesh of of technology that's keeping an eye on the road and and informing the vehicles that are arriving down the street what's going on as well. Like you know, because you can't you know clearly they all have sensors you know front back left right whatever that they're using to judge distance between other cars and stuff like that. But if there was like a you know a street light that could send them a signal like kind of like Waze does where it says hey there's you know a, a car on the side of the road ahead. That kind of stuff, right? Like, I don't know if you use the Waze app. We've been using it constantly, but um, just to save time. But the, you know, if something like that was informing these devices, maybe that's how Google's able to do it. They're able to tap into that kind of technology, you know. But yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think, like, in terms, like as Jaime said, it's like the electricity in your house. There has to be sort of an in- infrastructure to make this stuff really work, you know. Whether I always thought maybe they'd put beacons right. in the in the in the tarmac or something, you know. 
So here's something like we have a real world analogy and it comes from um, military defense systems. So when you have your, you know, fabulous F-22s and F-35s flying out there to go, you know, do the things that they do, they're dependent on the radar from the AWACS that is up there. You know, the big eye in the sky with enormous loud radar and other type of sensor systems that's telling like, hey, there's somebody you know, on the other side of the horizon, you should go take them out right before they see you sort of thing. And I think if we had something like that for this, where you can imagine drone systems that are, you know, to, to Mark's example, where it's flying above the hill and, and covering some area things like, Hey, um, there's a pedestrian or there's a car coming and having that connected in some sort of network system. Uh, it would be kind of tough, I think, to make sure that that's reliable and that you're not, introducing another factor that's easily hackable and giving false yeah. data to the, the car. Uh, but hypothetically, that sort of solution would work. Yeah, you need a lot of drones uh, to cover. And you'd have to, to get people to, to cover, stop uh, shooting down. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, th th this is where you have a public-private partnership and all those drones are, you know, on their way doing stuff, delivering Amazon Prime packages to, like, my house. And on the <laughs> on the route, <laughs> they're telling people, like, you know, like like Mark and Tim driving around, like, hey, by the way, your, your car is going to have to stop right here because somebody is in the lane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think more likely is, is, uh, yeah, the top of, uh, street lights or, or signposts or things like that. They could just put some kind of cheap sensor up there. Um, cause with the drone, you have, mm -hmm. you're, you're sort of counting on the fact that it happened, there happens to be one driving over just that spot right at the second that this, this bike is at full speed riding, Cutting across the street as your car is coming. Yeah, yeah. I, w I was kind of envisioning with being like patrol drones, you know, like like having a coverage area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would be good for for you know sort of macro scale patterns, you know, seeing traffic patterns and and stuff like that. Um, but but not so good at the you know the real time quick events that that you're, you're trying to avoid. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. Fun times. Right, so move on to the main area, the main event. So not not much of a main event. One of my friends who was sort of uh, still very much in the Objective-C world was sort of saying, hey, take this, Swift developers. Um, but this is a, um, from GitHub. It's a list called Octoverse, which lists um, various technologies, um, scripting languages, and how popular they are uh, based by pull, pull requests and that kind of stuff. And... Um, while Swift is down at the bottom of the list, it's still on the list, which is kind of interesting. And it's not for that far below Objective-C as well, right? Do you guys have a chance to look at this document at all? Looking at it right now. Yeah, it's actually mm -hmm. kind of surprising that they're so close to each other at this point. Because there's so much legacy Objective-C stuff out there that yeah, and, still working and, on. And look at the, the metric. It's not merged pull requests. It's open to pull requests. So maybe all those Objective-C pull requests are just languishing there. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's you, fork is just sadly, you know, always ahead kind of thing. But if you look at the number beside it, it's up by two hundred and fifty six two hundred and sixty two percent, right? So that's Swift quite a rise. Is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Swift is, yeah. Yeah, and Objective C's is up thirty seven percent, even though the numbers are currently uh, very close with seventy five thousand and sixty two thousand. So you can see that it's going to overtake, you know, next year I would guess for sure. Taking um, over Scala for sure. Yeah, but good heavens, look at JavaScript. Despite having, 
is that 1.6 million it's up 97 percent wow so it's just about doubled if i'm reading this correctly well i'm sure i'm sure 90 percent of that is node stuff right because that's this was kind of the year of node mm-hmm. yeah over the world yeah, yeah powering even things like homebridge that we just talked about right exactly yeah i'm not helping <laughs> <laughs> Well, you you know, open more pull requests for like the Swift uh, projects. You know, open two That's Swift true. pull requests for every one Node one that you you have involvement with. Yeah, so we need to have somebody write a Swift uh, open source project to interface with my next uh, thermostat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. Other other repositories down the list here, like the Homebrew one, is quite popular. Node.js is is on the repositories with most users reviewing code. Um. Node is number four on the list there, as you just mentioned. Facebook's down at the bottom of that one. Yeah, there's some interesting kind of things here in the like repositories with the most open source contributors. Uh, Font Awesome has the most, which I've not yeah. actually used that. I could have sworn we talked about it at some point as a. I use it all the time on my some of my websites. It's um, for doing things like you can use fonts to replace icons, things like you know. Um, your Facebook link and your your Twitter icons and stuff like that, and use it a lot in, in uh, WordPress stuff. And on my website, actually across the top, I've got some font awesome icons instead of putting text in. Right, so I can have like an iPad or uh, you know for some of my um, instead of having to draw an icon, pretty much. Yeah, it's awesome, mm. and it's a font. It's yeah. font awesome. And, and, you know, rounding out the, the top ones, it's not surprising to see NPM and Docker and React Native in there. Um, going down towards the organizations with the most open source contributors, this one I found highly surprising. Because if you had asked me Microsoft. before, yeah, yeah, Microsoft at number one, beating out Facebook by a good margin and Google pretty handily. Um, and, and when you think of, you know, open source contributors from a know public corporation standpoint those two come to mind immediately so i'm, I'm very surprised to see microsoft uh, at the top of this mm. list wow i mean pleasantly yeah. so i'm like looking down like yeah, okay <laughs> apache you know want awesome mm-hmm, mm-hmm. npm docker docker of course is, is, has been really hot as everybody's looking towards that but also interesting down at the very bottom the countries with the biggest increase in user signups china and russia Ninety-seven, seventy-four percent. Indonesia is ninety percent. India. So, the the BRIC countries are all up really high. The one that surprised me is Japan being up fifty-two percent. I wonder what's going on over there. Like the the other ones, I can kind of explain as, oh well, you know, more and more of their population is coming online, and they're getting into much more of a technology base for each one of these countries but but japan is already is already there right you're yeah, think you of think them it's as already online country. kind of saturated at this point yeah can you explain sure. brick to us uh to our listeners who may not know what you're talking oh about, um i hope i have it right but it's that um acronym for uh brazil russia india and china okay right. as being like the the big growth areas in the you know the coming decades economic um growth areas yeah, yeah. Well, it definitely shows here as well. Eight, almost 80 million total pull requests on GitHub. Yeah. And 85% of all requests for change come from within organizations. Crazy stuff. Yeah, it, it does so what, sort of make me wonder about sort of where things are going to go. Because, you know, GitHub, as, as great as it is, is a, you know, an actual for-profit company. It's not like, you know, 
hosted by the United Nations or, or, or some other, um, you know, charitable organization or any other sort of, you know, non-for-profit sort of circumstances. So they they have to continue to good, do good things and they have to continue to make money. And uh, as we're saying here, many, many people are becoming more and more dependent on on them working quite well. Um, so I'll be very curious to see what ends up happening for them. What happens happen? if they get hacked? Oh man, good heavens, that would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about at the very top of the uh, page here is uh, the Apollo 11 repository, which was opened up this year. For all these oh yeah, we mentioned on the that. show at some point. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Go send Apollo 11 to the moon. Yeah, should you want to build a rocket and go to the moon, you know. Is it all in Fortran, or what language is it? Click on that link. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. We we had that um, on the show. Uh, I don't know, maybe a few months ago. I think. Oh, yeah. maybe maybe I wasn't there for that one. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of more of just like a quick, quick oddity kind of thing that you know it was released out there, and there were whole requests to fix typos and, and other things. And of course, the top name on the uh, submitters are Margaret Hamilton, who just got the. Is it the Medal of Freedom that um, Barack Obama was given out a couple of weeks ago? Uh, possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think so. The like Ellen DeGeneres got one, and, and yeah, similars. Yeah, yeah. I think so. They, I, I get confused on the name. On the, uh, yeah, it's the civilian ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know what language this is. It's not Fortran. It looks, it looks like some kind of assembly language, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's what it says on the on the site we were just on GitHub. Oh, it does on the Octoverse. Yeah, it has just below that sort of. Um, spider webby graphic um it shows assembly c c sharp the colors the color coding is the that orange sort of color is um for apollo you know that's got you know what swift and javascript and all that stuff as well swift is red for some reason i'm not sure why no i was talking specifically about the apollo 11 code though yeah yeah no i think well it's color coded as as if it's assembly so that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, so, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for those of you driving at home, there's a big, colorful spiderweb chart that also has a little gra- um a little legend, in it, and and the the color is a very nice orange for Apollo 11, which implies assembly. Um, and and Tim, I think Swift ends up in there because it's it's not big enough like Java, C, and C plus plus, and it kind of leans more towards the C plus plus, right? Uh, C style of um, heritage i think they just didn't want to put another color (laughs) (laughs) it should be orange come on i mean they have um what is this like periwinkle here for plain text and markdown i think they could have added another color (laughs) (laughs) periwinkle blue looks like you've got a public service announcement for uh, all of us app developers yes one of my one of my favorite things we've mentioned this a few times on the show app transport security or ats um, that's where Apple wants everybody to use uh, HTTPS and TLS 1.2 and forward secrecy in all of our communications between our client apps and our servers. Um, and that comes into a full effect on January 1st, 2017. And if you're not up to speed on that, you can go back and watch the What's New in Security WWDC video from 2016 that explains how app transport security works. And basically the bottom line is if a lot of people did, it started came out in iOS 9 and what a lot of people did to get it working or work around it, I guess, 
was they went in and set the default exclusion, which is allow arbitrary loads, which means that anything can it can hit any server with any protocol. I mean, any protocol being an HTTP as opposed to HTTPS. And um, Apple is going to be looking for apps that are they're going to be reject, rejecting apps who have that turned on as as um, without using HTTPS uh, as of January first, I believe. And uh, I also heard that they're going to go through and look for apps in the, in the app store currently that have that and they haven't gone through and done properly put the exclusions in. The, the bottom line is this. If you are going to, if you need an exclusion for a server that doesn't have, that isn't capable of running TLS 1.2 or, or forward sequence, you either have to set those, those to no or with TLS, you have to set it to a lower version if your server supports, it doesn't support 1.2. Um, and yeah, basically you're going to have to give the reviewer of your app code a reason why, you know, you have for excluding that. So something to be for people to be watched. And by the time this airs, um, you probably have like a, no, you won't have, you won't even, because I think the store closes on Friday, right? On the 23rd for submissions. Yeah. I think it's the 23rd to the 27th. They, they're closed to the, you know, no app reviews. Yeah. So if you haven't got your ducks in a row, you've got till you know pretty much your first submission for the new year to make it so. Yeah, hopefully by now people have have gotten things squared away. Uh, I guess you're going to have a rather unfortunate post Christmas time um, if you haven't. Uh, I would guess at this point it should be primarily um, third party services that would be the issue, and maybe some internal services that haven't mm-hmm. migrated. Um, having gone through this uh, already. Uh, it was kind of a kind of a non-issue in projects that I've worked on. It, it kind of seemed to work pretty pretty seamlessly, uh, at least for the kind of stuff that we were doing. So hopefully that ends up being the case for anybody who's, who's still out there. Yeah, yeah. And most even- of the work is is server side actually, because if you're if your server side is set up to handle it, and in your app you're still calling HTTP, it will automatically behind the scenes try to make a call using HTTPS for you. So you don't necessarily have to change your app to add that S, although you probably should. No reason why not to. But at least it's 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 clever enough to to try to to make the call anyway for you. And as long as your server is okay, you should be all right. Yeah, and, and it will, I think it's anything running iOS nine or newer will uh, by default uh, look for TLS one point two and forward secrecy. And there's one other I forget what they call it a cipher cipher or something or other. Um, Apple has some specific sort of more modern um, uh, configurations they, they expect. And because uh, I know with one project, I had to go in and, and say, well, we don't use, we didn't, we didn't have TLS 1.2. We had uh, 1.1 installed. So we had to, in that app, we had to set an exception. But, and if you're still targeting iOS 8, that doesn't mean you don't have to do this. You do in fact have to do that because uh, you don't know what your clients are running and um, you don't want to get caught with it later on. So I've had it in my app since, mm. uh, since nine came out, even though I was still writing for iOS eight. Now I wonder if do you think just having the uh, allow all calls, whatever the whatever the, the actual allow arbitrary loads, you mean? Uh, uh, that's the one. Uh, yeah, allow arbitrary loads. Will just having that in your p list be enough to get your app rejected, even if you're complying with the with the rules uh, in in every call that you do? From, I read something on the developer forum today, um, and if you do nothing, it'll use it'll it'll try to use app transport security, right? So your call may fail, is what the problem is, right? Right, that's right. Um, but if so, so if you don't have anything in there, and technically you're using it, and, and as long as your app runs and it gets reviewed, you're fine. 
I, in theory, right? But like I said, if you have to do any kind of exceptions, um, you might want to do that. Like, you know, we have a couple of, I think if you use a web, WK web view as well, um, you can have uh, some, either you can either have arbitrary loads or it, or it automatically will switch over to them if you have them. But um, yeah, and the bottom but, line is. But if, I, if you, I'm asking a slightly different question. Uh, so, so say when this first came out, you put in the allow arbitrary loads just to be safe into your app, into your plist, and and then you went on, and then over time you migrated all your servers correctly, and now everything is compliant. Your servers are compliant, your app is compliant, but you still mm-hmm. have that that uh, that item in your plist. Just you forgot to take it out. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, does that? Is that an auto? Will that be an auto rejection? That's that's what I'm wondering. I believe it will, and that's what I'm saying. Like you want to make sure that you don't have that because if you have that, if you had put that in there like a year and a half ago just to get your app running or get it through development or whatever, yep. um, you will get flagged. And I think it's kind of like you know the Bitcode compliance and that kind of stuff. It'll actually stop it during the verification phase of of trying to upload. Like that's what Apple yeah, does that's now, true. right? Yeah, yeah. It probably won't get to the point where you actually get rejected. It won't even get that far. Right, yeah, because they'll, yeah, they'll be looking yeah. for that. That they'll yeah. be reading, they'll be reading your p list as 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 the bundle goes in, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Using your app, your pixie dust or whatever they use. Mm-hmm. But I'll find that link in the form in the app form. I took a screenshot of it today to send to other people on our team who don't have access to the the Apple forums, developer forums. That's that. That's my PSA. And where's the more you know. Yeah. That might be copyrighted. <laughs> What's that from? <laughs> That's uh, is uh, it one N- of the TV NBC? networks. That's it. yeah. Oh, I yeah. see. App transfer security always on. <laughs> yeah. See, we're we're fine for now because you know we host this on our own servers, so we're not like YouTube channel folks who are deadly afraid of being caught by the automated mm. systems that find you know IP violations, uh, copyright violations, and if you. Apparently, if you sing something too well, it can trigger Google's system. Mm. But we have no such mm. restriction. We being, oh, we being us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're like there would have to be an actual person who says, "Hey, wait a minute, that sounds like the NBC <laughs> tune," and we yeah, didn't get yeah. you know our ten cent <laughs> royalty for it, and then we have a multi million dollar lawsuit, which actually yeah. might be good. That's good PR, right? <laughs> not necessarily we can discuss this we can just discuss this in the after after show anyway, <laughs> anyway. it guys in llc right uh sorry is, uh is it guy in llc yeah i think so i think it's the same thing i'm i'm a, i'm a limited actually but i think it's i think it's different than i think i don't know if we have llc's up here in canada oh i think it's the same idea but you have limited liability so if, yeah. in case in case the company gets sued you're not personally liable Oh, I don't know. I just I figured <laughs> better not to say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I cut all this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as we're saying that, I was like, oh man, they couldn't get Edward Snowden, but we sure as heck can extradite Tim Mitra. <laughs> we got Tim Mitra. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they look for Tim Mitra, they'll, they'll never find him, right? Yeah, That's exactly. True. That's true. Yeah. I can't find this Tim Mitra. Oh, there's no Tim Mitra here, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, we, got wrong, we got the wrong number. <laughs> we got the wrong house. <laughs> anyway, so hi, mate. Tell us about makers versus menders. Yeah, so this is sort of the time of the year as we're recording this, where you know people start reflecting on on where are they at with their career, where are they at with life. You know, the new year's coming up, and and that's a good time. And I thought this was a good article to to sort of read and think about what you're going to be doing in the new year if you're going to be making 
um, any sort of decisions career-wise. It's an article by Andrea Goulet, and she's the CEO of Corgi Bytes, a consulting company that focuses on projects with legacy code. And uh, I think that'll be important sort of later on in, in, in this discussion here, because she talks about sort of how there's two different types of, of folks. Uh, and, and I think it's not necessarily just people, but also sort of like, where are you at in your particular um, circumstances in your career? And, and I think that can change over time where she poses that there's the, the maker type, the people who um, are quite often involved in initial development on a project. It's quite possibly the minimum viable uh, product phase. Um, they really love a blank canvas and open green field projects um, where they're given room to experiment and, and there's some sort of, you know, hard deadline uh, to, to get things uh, either working or not. And contrasting it is the, the mender side, which focuses a lot more on companies and projects that are stable, but growing. And, and they focus a lot more on the other things you don't have time to get to when you're um, doing an MVP, like security, scalability, um, they're spending time refactoring and bug fixing, standardizing things, and are looking a lot more for having the sort of like the small wins sort of thing where, you know, did I do something uh, useful today to make this just a little bit nicer, even if it was in this little corner of the project that I make the code base nicer today. I thought it was kind of a, an interesting thing to sit in and, and take in as like, okay, well, you know, where are things at in my own career? And, and I think that might be good for folks uh, listening to the show, uh, thinking about their own career. Like, where, where are you at? Right. Like I've, I've definitely been in the uh, greenfield open space um, kind of thing, uh, living the startup life and, and it's wild and crazy and there's tons of pros and tons of cons. And then I've also been in the um, maintenance mode, the much more the mender piece where, you know, it is a big sustaining system and, there are many pros and cons of that too, right? It's generally a slower pace, but it's also much more of like a methodical sort of thing. You're not just kind of tossing it together. You're like, well, okay, let, let's really think about how we're going to do this because this area of, of the code has actually changed um, quite a few times and it, it's been painful every time. So we're going to come up with a better way. So it's not painful to change it in the future, right? Kind of like the other side of the pendulum for what we've talked about in the past few weeks about uh, you know, you're not going to need it and, and don't worry about that sort of stuff. That that definitely applies a whole lot more in the maker model. But if you're in the mender area, like, well, you you saw where it failed and now you can figure out where you can change things. And I think the, the biggest thing I sort of took away from this article was uh, the analogy she makes uh, towards the bottom about how makers are to new construction, like for real estate as menders are to remodeling. And, and that's kind of, I think, a, a fairly apt analogy because it it is very similar, right? Like she brings up um, this old house. If you've ever seen that TV show where they, they remodel mm -hmm. homes. And uh, I'll be honest, I've seen the show and, and sometimes I'm like, mm, I think you guys built a, an entire brand new house, but you kept like the <laughs> fireplace. <laughs> you kept the fireplace to technically keep it as like the same house. Um, but most of the time it's, you know, they're, they're adding on uh, like a second level or they're adding, um, you know, a bigger parking garage, or, sorry, no, uh, you know, home garage sort of thing. So I don't know. I thought it was a, a cute way to put it in 
I, I would propose it here for folks uh, listening to the show is like, think about where you're at with that. Cause if there's a mismatch between things where if you're on a project that's in the, the mending mode and you're in the maker mindset, like you're going to hate it, right? It's going to feel like, Oh, this is boring. I hardly do anything. Um, what exactly is going on here? And if you're on a project, you're in a mender mindset and you're on a maker project, like you're going to hate it. It's going to feel like what this is reckless. How can we not think about, mm-hmm. well, we don't have time to think about this stuff because we don't know if we're going to have jobs a year from now. So what does it matter? <laughs> yeah. Not as gloomy as that, but yeah, no, I, I do know what you mean. I think I tend to be, <laughs> I tend to be on the maker side and, uh, uh, yeah, I do really, it really does drag me down when I'm, when I'm in maintenance mode. Then, but then again, I also like to pick up, uh, other people's broken toys and fix them. Right. So. Yeah. And I think people's careers will, will ebb and flow and, and your own thoughts on that might ebb and flow even, um, within the same year, right. Depending on what's going on with the rest of your life. Um, if you've got yeah. a lot of non work things going on, uh, you might want something that's more of a, a mending project because you, you want more of that stable nine to five sort of thing versus the, you know, Hey, um, I don't have anything to do outside of what I'm working on here. So yeah, I'll, I'll stay up all night and all weekend working on just to see this thing come to fruition. Right. It, it, it just depends on what you're looking for. I think. Yep. Good stuff. That's it. That's all. <laughs> that's all I had to say. It's not, not, not really that long of an article. It's a, a nice big typeface. So it's pretty easy read. No, it's definitely, it's a, a good perspective for people to sort of consider what kind of, what kind of person they are. I was telling some of the developers at the office the other day about, um, people have different work styles and cause they're, they're kind of wired differently, you know, in, in work groups and some people are better, you know, that's why some groups work better together because they're akin kindred spirits in terms of how they approach problems and solve problems and create, you know, new apps and that kind of new features and that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. I could say more about it, but I'll say I'll save it for later. Mm-hmm. Hey there, MTJC listeners. All good things come to an end, and I'm sad to say that end has come for me. After a couple years and over 100 episodes, I'm bidding the MTJC podcast goodbye. It's tough to leave something that's been such a wonderful experience for me. I've had a ton of fun talking about the latest news and trends around the Apple ecosystem, and I'm definitely going to miss it. There's something unique about podcasting, about speaking extemporaneously about these topics that's really clarified my thinking in a way that nothing else does. This great show has given me many amazing opportunities. It hasn't just been my career, but the times I shared with the other hosts. I really want to thank Tim for organizing and continuing to produce the podcast, and to Mark and Jaime for being such steadfast observers with their keen insights. And of course, to the other hosts over the years, Tammy and Greg, it's been a terrific experience working with all of you, and I look forward to a long and continuing path forward for the show without me. Take care. Feedback and let's do some picks. So, hey, Jaime, you got a pick on our favorite character. I want to hear how you how you say the word. I say it the correct way. So, um, unlike other ways, I'm like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a, a high horse here on this one because there are actual Italians that actually pronounce this. So there is a very small region of, uh, of the United States that would pronounce this differently. And I will call them and tell them that you are wrong. Well, 
whatever. I don't care that much. It's uh, Super Mario <laughs> Run, right? He even says it himself. It's a me, Mario, in his very Mario kind of stereotypically somewhat offensive. But I'm I'm not Italian, so what do I care? <laughs> <laughs> sort of way. Play one on TV, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So Super Mario Run. Uh, by the time this show goes out, I'd be really surprised if people hadn't heard about it because it's coming out on sort of normal news channels as, as being a big thing. Um, Nintendo's, um, you know, first real first party uh, approach to mobile platforms. Of course, they had the sort of a little bit of a taste of that earlier in the year with Pokemon Go through their subsidiary, um, the Pokemon Company and, and Google's Niantic. Uh, but this is using their, you know, homegrown Mario IP, uh, as we've talked about, it's a uh, similar to an endless runner sort of uh, style, but it's it's actually small, discrete chunks. So let's see, each session is what like a minute? I think I think I don't think they go much longer than one to two minutes for each of the different levels, and uh, they're they're designed levels. They're not um, you know generated levels. They're not you know randomly procedurally generated levels that. Um, you know, just go on and on and you just see how far you can go. This is like, no, here's the actual one. Like you're, you got to get, uh, across this open field, or maybe you have to go through the castle and defeat Bowser kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's quite fun. And so it's got different modes where you are doing the, the different levels. So it comes, you know, if you pay the $9 and 99 cents and get beyond the, the first three, um, levels, you will get, I think it's 24 or was it six, six worlds each four? Yeah. Four, uh, 24 levels, uh, with a ton of replayability because you, um, not only want to get to the end of the, uh, of the goal and, and, you know, go down the, the flagpole and, and celebrate sort of thing, but there's also these side goals of like the first set is collecting all of the pink coins within the level, uh, which can be kind of challenging because, uh, as we've mentioned before, like you can't go backwards. This isn't like a traditional Mario game. The only thing you can do is affect how Mario jumps. And and there are things that will change Mario's direction or, you know, shoot him out of a cannon and, and other type stuff, but it's pretty much just like a rhythm type based game where you have to sort of know like, okay, I need to jump over this guy to get this coin. And then I need to shoot out of the cannon, float a little bit so I can get just far enough to get this other coin and so on and so forth. So you have the pink coins. And then once you've collected all those for a level, it's the purple coins, which are in a different location and generally much more challenging to actually achieve. And then once you collect the purple coins within a level, it goes to the black coins. And these are the painful coins to get. And and I've not completed this myself. I'm still way, way far behind in doing this because of how devious some of these are. Uh, and the black coins actually... Uh, change the level like the layout of the level changes pretty significantly in, in some of the levels so it, it's like you're you're getting a whole lot more than the 24 levels right it's, it's probably more like 48 levels for your, your nine dollars and 99 cents if you were thinking about just the tour mode the other two side modes are um somewhat interrelated so there's the rally mode where in the game you can do certain um, events like collecting the coins and whatnot to get these, uh, toad rally tickets and you use, uh, or expend those tickets in order to do competitive racing sort of thing. Um, so 
you'll be competing with everybody else, you know, on the planet. You know, it's some random generation of like who is there. I'm not really 100% sure because I don't think Nintendo said if like, is it people who are on online right now or do they take, you know, some random sampling of uh, everybody who's there and you're going to compete. You'll see like a little ghost version of uh, the other player going through the level at the same time as you. And you win by um, getting more coins, points type thing than the other person, in addition to having what the, the quote unquote style. So uh, if you do backflips, if you do, uh, you know, floats, uh, you know, you get the, the star man um, power up, all those sorts of things impact uh, how the toad crowd feels about you. And so even though, you've collected uh, the same number of coins as the other person, you might actually eke out a victory because you did some really cool kickflips coming off of that Goomba sort of thing. So, so that's a mode I actually spend a lot of time in because it's super fun to compete. I, I, I'm kind of obsessed with some, especially when I, when I lose to someone, I'm like, Oh my God, how did they, how did they get through? I could see the little guy doing there. How, you know, what did they do here? Let me try that sort of trick on the next uh, rematch. And then the third mode is the world building one, which um, for me, it's not, not really all that entertaining. Like, I I didn't do the whole Farmville thing, so I don't really, you know, personally get the, you know, creating a little castle, and then here's a little homes for the toads. And, and in that world-building mode, you can get access to more, um, more rally ticket type stuff. You know, you can have, like, a coin block, and there's a once-a-day, once-a-day? Twice, three times, I guess it's every eight hours, three times a day. Um, free bonus games lets you get more access to the the Toad Rally tickets, and it's also, um, and in the world building mode, is where you're going to use the results of your hopefully many victories in the rally mode to create the little homes for the extra special characters like Yoshi, Luigi, Toadette, and so forth that you can use. So it's not just Mario uh, as you go through the game, or um, more simply. If you simply link your um, your Nintendo account to the app, you'll get Toad for free, one of the characters. And, and each of these different Mario characters plays significantly differently, which um, in my testing I found makes some of the levels a whole lot easier, like getting some of the coins is a whole lot easier. And in the rally, it sort of changes the strategy of like, okay, for this one, do I want somebody who's better at making jumps or do I want somebody who's faster? Do I want somebody who can recover easier? So there's a little bit of strategy, like sort of like choosing your, your, your best pony sort of thing for the race. So it's, uh, it's definitely pretty fun. Um, is it really worth the nine ninety nine? I think is probably the biggest question in everybody's mind. If you haven't actually tried it already. <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of people are complaining about that, right? I yeah, see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I don't think it's a good use of nine ninety nine if you're not a fan. Um, the game plays beautifully; it, it, it looks great. Uh, the jumping mechanics feel spot on, uh, about as good as I think as you could possibly get on a touch interface without having like actual high quality Nintendo controllers. So I was very impressed with that. But it's at nine ninety nine. I have to think. Okay, is this one third? of a Nintendo 3DS game, which will range between $30 to $40. And I'm going to go on the low end just to make it a little easier. Is it one-third of one? Like, mm, not really. I feel like it's more like a quarter to one-fifth of a Nintendo, like an actual normal Mario game. 
I think if you're not into the competitive aspect, like the Toad Rally piece, you won't enjoy it as much, which I think is a big differentiator from traditional Mario games where uh, while there are, you know, speed runners for like even the original um, Mario on the Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, you can enjoy it just as well if you're kind of slow to get through the game or if you're super fast and you waste no effort. Uh, so I think that kind of, in my mind, makes it less of like $9.99. I feel more comfortable really recommending it highly to, to like average people on the street at, you know, $4.99. Um, but the price is what it is. You, you get uh, at least the three levels for the demo, and I can't remember if you get to play the, the Toad Rally and the world building at all. Um, but I think you'll have a pretty good idea when you go through the the demo and the um, like the three free levels that they give you because it's it's freemium, but like and and in at purchase enabled, but in kind of a different way, right? So we've we've talked a lot about this sort of thing in games where they're like almost actively hurting you, right? They're, they're using it in sort of a, uh, a casino style, like just trying to get you to dump money into this long term. Um, the only thing Nintendo is going to get out of you in this one is the nine ninety nine. Should you choose to do that? And it does have freemium style mechanics where like the bonus game, as I mentioned, is only three times a day, uh, once every eight hours. And the, uh, the toad rally, like you have to do stuff to get tickets in order to play the toad rally and compete with other people, but they're not charging you money for that. Like you still have, you have to play the game in order to play the game. Right. 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 So it's not like you just, Oh, I pay to win and okay, I'm better than everybody. Cause I, I bought the thousand dollar in at purchase sort of thing. So I, I think that's where it, it sort of sits in a weird spot where we, we've seen in at purchases used like this for, pro tools and productivity tool type stuff where, Oh, you know, this is like shareware. Oh, if you try it and after a while, if you like it, great, you can buy it and you can unlock all the features. This was, I think more akin to that, than it is like clash of clans sort of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, but isn't the whole environment behind Nintendo games, like, aren't they way more expensive on other platforms? So, I mean, it's not, a, they're not charging 60 or $70 for this thing, which is one thing, right? You know, I was going to say, and for I think for a true fan, you know, that's the kind of thing they're either you get it on date when it's brand new and you pay full price for it, or you get it used or you do trade-ins and that kind of stuff when you go to your local EB games. I don't know if you have those in the states, but so I I, I don't know. And, and we've we've t- talked about this a thousand times on the show. Like you got to charge realistically. I I know Nintendo's a giant company and all that kind of stuff, and you know, um, but we have to start raising the price of of software on on these devices and. I heard somebody say the other day that, that they had a friend who doesn't pay for any software at all on iOS, and I think it's, that's ridiculous, you know. But isn't that like, isn't that, wouldn't you think that, that it's a premium product and therefore it should have a premium price? I think it's a really good example because you're right. Um, so I compared it to, you know, the, the, the 3DS, Nintendo 3DS uh, portable game console systems. Um, if you were buying a, a full-up Mario game for the Nintendo Wii U or the upcoming Nintendo Switch, it's almost certainly going to cost you fifty to sixty dollars, um, yeah, with a different kind of expectations for it, right? But the the brand itself is premium, and the product that they produced here is also pretty premium too. Like for for what it is, like if you're expecting it to be 
like the original Mario on the Nintendo or like Mario 64, like you're going to be very disappointed because it's, it's not that right. Like that sort of experience I would posit is generally impossible to reproduce on a mobile platform, unless you also have some sort of required um, third party accessory, right? Like if Nintendo said, Hey, we've built a, um, an iPhone or iPad case that includes um, Nintendo D-pad quality and controllers. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you're willing to give up screen real estate to to make that controller, right? As part of the screen, you can do it. It, it can be technically done, but I I would argue that it can't be done well. Like not Mario well. Like I've I've played you know games that have the the D pad on there, and there's some that are pretty good um, for not having the tactile feel, but to have the intricate jump. Uh, mechanisms um i find myself getting really frustrated with those when i'm like i know i i know i hit this if i had a button with an actual you know spring on it and little dampening system like i know for sure it would have registered on a controller oh, yeah man, i think it's so really 90s hard. honey oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so um in any case i do think that this is a, a good first step. Um, hopefully it will come down. Uh, I will clarify uh, at least one point of uh, misinformation I've seen going around the interwebs. And that is, um, although it is not available for um, family sharing, like I guess in-app purchases are, are generally not. I'll take people's word for it because I don't, I don't use family sharing. Uh, and that's rather unfortunate. But it is not a per-device purchase unless you have some sort of weird setup where every device in your house has a different Apple ID. So for example, um, I have this on my iPhone and my iPad, both of which are using the same Apple ID. That's fantastic. Uh, if your setup has uh, spouses own devices and, and particularly children's devices, I don't really know what the right answer is there. I, I'd assume um, all the children's devices probably have the same Apple ID or something. Um, I don't know, uh, if you have a 14-year-old and a 5-year-old, that probably doesn't work too well, but uh, hopefully you can figure something out. I could see where that would suck if the... You're saying the in-app purchases may not be shareable? That's weird. I think in-app purchases are not... uh, Or or maybe... I'm not even sure if it's all in-app purchases. Maybe it's at certain types. Um, But apparently this is using at least the type that uh, does not fall under family sharing. Hmm. Yeah, so that is the one downside of it not being a straight-up uh, paid app, which I think would allow it to fall under normal family sharing. So I, I don't know. I think it was a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of thing for Nintendo. Like I think this is pretty, pretty nice in that you, um, you get a taste of what you're in for, uh, very shareware style uh, with the free levels. And um, if you like it, you you know put down your money, your nine ninety nine, and hopefully you're very pleased with it. Uh, I think it would be much harder for them to have reached. What, do I, what did I write down here? Forty million downloads in four days. <laughs> if it was ten dollars up front, right? Like I know right. there's people who are very upset uh, about the pricing, but you didn't have to pay that to try it out, right? I was like, oh man, it's ninety nine. Yeah. It sucks, and now I gotta hopefully know that there's an actual refund policy, and hopefully I'm within the policy, and I gotta go through this effort. It's like. You know, not very seamless. Like this is, I think, about as good as you could get for what Nintendo was trying to do. 
So the builder, the builder version, you saw, or the builder world. Um, my my youngest son, grandson, he lives on his iPad, and he has a Nintendo Wii U. And we were at his place yesterday, and he was playing Mario Builder World or something like that on on his Wii U. And so, but he 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 just eats up the whole builder world building thing, and he finds all these sort of loopholes in it that where he gets these sort of chaotic um, scenarios, you know, where. Mario ends up running up into a, and there's a part where he can loop a bunch of uh, bad guys, and uh, every time Mario hits one of them, it, it does some sort of effect, and you get these sort of like lightning effects. It's almost like he's overloading the processor kind of thing. These really weird uh, things he does with the app. But is that is that builder oh, rule that you mentioned? Is that something in this app or no? No. So I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about Mario Maker, which is, yeah. is actually different. Like you're building, like you're designing, I should say, an actual Levels, yeah. level. And, yeah. and people share that, and and there's hilarious stuff out there. And and it sounds like what he's gotten into a little bit is people will design levels that sort of run themselves, to sort of just use and abuse the the physics the systems yeah. for yeah, Mario. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of those can be pretty entertaining. No, uh, the world building I'm talking about is more like like Farmville style. Like, oh, I think I'm going to oh. build a house for red toads here, and the yellow toads go here, and I'm going to put uh, like I. Right now is the the winter time, and I guess I had enough toads of the right uh, type and color to do this. Where I have a nice Christmas tree out in front of the castle, and that's sort of just okay. You know, yeah, why? It's, it's why cute and entertaining, but like, yeah, for me, I was like, mm, you know, I kind of just want to do the competitive aspect, and also want to sure. do the, the playing through the the games. But that's just me, right? Like, there's tons of people that enjoy the the like you know village building type stuff, which is why Farmville was was so successful. I wish I had known this was going to happen because i would have definitely taken like a little video of it so i'll see if i can reproduce it at some point in the future um but it almost seems like a sad little like um story for like teaching children how gentrification works because <laughs> <laughs> there's only limited slots as to where you can put different houses right so okay well here's a yellow house for the yellow toads and then later on in the game, I was like, oh, I can buy one of these upgraded houses. Well, I'm gonna, I want the red house to be like right next to it. What I didn't realize is when I put down that red house in the spot that I put it, it like removed the yellow house because this one requires no. two brick slots. I was like, oh no, the yellow house is like the yellow toads. They got moved out. Oh my God. Like the nicer reds in this area <laughs> has made it so the yellow toads can't live in the place they've lived for so long. It's sad. It's like, it's a harsh education. It's getting, it's getting too real. Yeah. Nintendo. What the hell man should have warned me about that. Trigger warning on that one. That's funny. So Mark, do you have any picks for us? I got a quick one. Uh, so last Monday up in San Francisco, we had the, iOS uh, Silicon Valley developers meet up and uh, there were two talks uh, one was given by our very own friend of the show and sometime co-host uh, Greg Heo mm-hmm. talking about uh, Swift 3 Swift 3 spelunking so looking for interesting new and interesting things in Swift 3 and, and beyond uh, unfortunately he did not publish the slides online so I can't oh. uh, give a link to them but the second talk was uh, also interesting uh, it was given by David Oaken, who is who just joined IBM as a new Katura developer evangelist. So he gave a pretty nice talk about uh, Katura and which is which is IBM's uh, Swift on the server uh, offering. We've talked about that a few mm-hmm. times in the show. Uh, and so he get, he's he's got the slides published online and a GitHub repo uh, that you can look at and. See kind of a cool demo of, of how Katura works. Uh, 
if you're so interested. So we'll publish those cool. in the in the uh, show notes. So you can take a look at that. That's it. Like I said, it's a quick one. Yeah, this is pretty neat to see because um, it is kind of nice to see something beyond the Hello World stuff, even mm -hmm. what you get on Katira's project site. Um, and, and looking very quickly through the, the code, uh, it looks pretty understandable. I, I do like yeah. how it's like super easy to get Katira set up um, and start listening to things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, and it, it was a nice talk that he gave too, that it kind of walked through all the different steps. So it, it does seem like it's pretty simple to get, to get up and running on this stuff. It's great to see that. Yeah. It's, it's quite the opposite of like, if, you ever had to set up some of like the J2EE type stuff yeah. um, way back in the day and um, even things like uh, like the spring MVC stuff was kind of hard to to set up the server. It was like you felt like a ton of different things you went through to configure and had to get ever so perfectly correct every single time. Otherwise, they would just mysteriously fail. Uh, and, and seeing this was like, okay, start server. Okay, listen on this port. All right. Um, add this endpoint. Okay, great. You know, like that's it's kind of seems like how you would want it to be. So I'm I'm loving how um, not only Katira, but there's also Perfect that's out yeah. there. And if you look at the Node stuff that we've uh, we've been talking about, that's also like super simple and easy to read too. To, at least from yeah. a minimal setup standpoint. For completeness, uh, Vapor is another one that's out there, and that one is also very easy to get up and running as well. I haven't actually run Perfect. Have you? Is it is it simple to get going? I haven't run it myself, but the, the set okay. looks pretty similar between. It's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Vapor's yeah. definitely been pretty Vapor's hot very, too. Yeah, it's it's very easy to get going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I've used both Vapor and Katora, and uh, maybe Vapor's a little easier to get started on, <laughs> but uh, but Katora's not bad at all. Both have nice Xcode integrations that are that are nice. Cool. Yeah. So you can have you know single single Xcode workspace. That has a server side project and a client side project, both in the same workspace, and kind mm. of co develop the two as you go. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the same, same code base, you can even share uh, frameworks if you want to share code between the two. It's kind of cool. So, how do these server environments normally fire off? Is it like a Mac app or do they run on the command line or once you got them configured? Uh, with the Xcode configuration, it actually has some scripts to uh, to launch it through Xcode, so you don't have to go to the command line. But you always oh, can okay. go yeah. go to mm -hmm. the command line. Yeah. And in fact, all it's doing is is calling a background script to launch it. How does that work with the debugger? So let's say you have your your client app that you're wanting to debug, and then mm -hmm. also um, you know you want to debug the server side. Is that pretty easy and, and seamless? It seems to be. I haven't done a lot of that, uh, but it seems to be, yeah, because they're they're really two separate processes. It's it's kind of the same in a lot of ways. To say you're running uh, an iPhone app on an iPhone and an iPad, let's say, and you know maybe you're using Bluetooth to have them talk to each other. Let's just say for the sake of argument, so you can run both processes and easily switch between the two uh, in the in the debugger just by tapping the right tab and you can set breakpoints that are independent of each other uh, and see what happens uh, on both sides. Now, sometimes you get timeouts and issues like that. And I'm sure you get the same kind of thing with, with this, but, but it's definitely doable. It's definitely doable. Mm -hmm. Cool. That, that does sound yeah. pretty, pretty nice to have um, 
like your entire system set up in, in one little workspace. As you mentioned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was thinking you could write a launch team or something like that if you wanted to put it on a Mac and run it, you know, have it in a server environment that would kick on whenever you fired up Mac. Right. Well, actually, yeah, good point. What I'm talking about where it's running from Xcode, uh, I've only done it to run on localhost. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, so yeah. on the Mac, yeah. Yep. So so presumably you'd have to do something more complicated to actually deploy it to a real server, even if it's even if your Mac is a real server, but you want to deploy it for external use. Yeah, and I think those three different projects all have um, Docker and possibly Vagrant uh, setup, so that that would probably go a long way towards making it easier to productionize it. I guess, even if, like you mentioned, it is just under a local box. Mm-hmm. So my pick is kind of a simple one, and it follows up on what you guys were saying over the last couple of weeks about open source acknowledgments. And this is a CocoaPod project that uh, Stephen Ranford has made up. Um, he's got a blog post to his um, his uh, blog article on it, and it's simply a CocoaPod that allows you to. Uh, it basically scrapes through the CocoaPod attribution or the headers of the CocoaPod files and uh, adds to your settings bundle um, a page where it'll uh, create the attributions for the CocoaPods you are using in your projects. So um, there's a link in the show notes here for a simple little quick tip to auto-include open source acknowledgments with CocoaPods. So does it generate the acknowledgment for this CocoaPod itself? Because <laughs> that'd be a rather sad. Well, it's, it seems a rather sad a dollar omission. away from your. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, in a past life, I've definitely been in an area where this would have been super helpful to have um, because it was very, very painful to go through and and sort of manually get this stuff put together. I think what we ended up doing was putting together a script. Um, so we had all the license files set for the third party projects and then it would run through, um, that directory structure and sort of like pull out the different things and, and assemble it all together to make the enormous settings bundle, um, stuff that, uh, like what this is trying to do and does, you know, much more seamlessly. Um, I don't know. It, hope, <laughs> hopefully if you're listening out there, you're not in a situation like I was at where, uh, you have so many third-party components and and CocoaPods to uh, to acknowledge, but I'm definitely cognizant of the fact that it's it's not always the case that you can um, sort of make those decisions, or maybe you've inherited some legacy code that already has made that decision for you, and maybe you weren't actually uh, following the terms. Um, so this might be a good way to to get you up to at least we are legally covered sort of state. Um, and, and keep you from pulling your hair out uh, trying to deal with all this stuff. This is where you say you're not a lawyer, right? I am also not a lawyer. <laughs> but you play one on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with all the disclaimers that, that Tim can add in. Right. It's constant, I am not a lawyer, I am not a lawyer. This is for uh, entertainment purposes only sort of thing. Yes, this, this advice is provided as is without any warranty of any kind, express or implied, including, but not limited to, warranties or merchantability, fitness or particular, blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, it really... <laughs> It really should be like any any advice that I'm giving you that is legal advice is almost certainly going to give you, you know, heartburn and get you into trouble. So get you into trouble. <laughs> take yeah. with that as you as you will. Yeah, if you're not sure, get three hundred dollars and go find a lawyer. And of course, I'd be remiss at this point if I didn't point out that the best thing to do is use as few third party libraries as possible 
That's uh, true. And then you never run into those issues. Mm-hmm. Among Tinker other issues. Among yeah. other issues. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks. I guess that's it, eh? So I guess we'll uh, say goodbye for the week. So, hey, um, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? They would look on Twitter, and I'm at Dev of the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Send me an email at markr at com. And as I said at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine, and that's the best way to get hold of me. All right, so we'll see you guys. Well, actually, we won't see you next week. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, Season's Greetings, Happy Kwanzaa. Have I forgotten anything? Best of us. Best of us. Don't forget Festivus, yes. Mm-hmm. It's for the rest of us. For the rest of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help in spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. I've now seen uh, Rogue One twice. No spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I'm I'm waiting to see it with my family. Um, so I've I've been trying to avoid spoilers all this week, but it, it yeah, sounds like but, it's pretty good. I I've only yeah. heard um, just one person online or two online say they were kind of disappointed, which really doesn't mean bad. It just, just disappointed. Don't say yeah. what they're disappointed by. Yeah. No, it wasn't specific. It just sounded like. Um, well, I, I didn't want to ask because I don't want to know spoilers. Right. right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm assuming, not knowing uh, any more information, that it was it was hyped up so much to be yeah. like you know, Ender, um, not Enterprise, uh, Empire Strikes Back yeah. level that if yes. it doesn't reach yeah. that, naturally you're going to be disappointed. The worst thing I heard about it was it's worth seeing, and that's <laughs> and that's, a, that's the worst thing. So that's good. Yeah. I had had somebody at work say that they're not going to watch it at all, and I don't, I don't know if I convinced them or not, but. Uh, I mean, I, I can tell you, I saw it in IMAX on on the first day, and then I saw I went when my sister asked if I could take her kids to the movies. So what other movie do these two guys want to see, right? And so we went and saw that, and got we got tickets like you know two hours before the show, and so we ended up in the third row in a U Ultramax, which is like it's not the screen is as big as an IMAX screen. Yeah, but it doesn't have as good sound, right? Yeah, or something like that. But we were sitting yeah. right at the front. It was so it was, it was loud uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, by the way, the, the, there's a movie coming out called Dunkirk, um, which looks really good. And it's kind of like all the sci-fi techie guys have gone and, you know, made a movie of what it was like to actually be in World War II. So it's pretty, pretty hairy. And there's a couple, there's a dogfight in there and, and you're watching these two planes chasing, being chased by, uh, uh, Lufthansa or whatever, the, uh, what are those guys called in Germany? The German planes. Luftwaffe. 
Luftwaffe. I don't, yeah. I don't remember what the planes are called, but it's the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe. Yeah, yeah so Luftwaffe being, is the, the airline. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I caught myself. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they're being chased by this thing, and, and uh, you know, and the guys, when, when the guy gets the other plane in his sights, all he's got is like this little orange target drawn on a piece of glass in front of him, and that that's like the state-of-the-art stuff, right? So... Mm. Yeah, and, and it's it just and of course you know with all the big you know Hollywood sounds of explosions going off and air raid mm-hmm. sirens and yeah I think it'll it'll it, it looks from the preview I saw pretty 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 cool so so it's like the first fifteen minutes of Saving Private Private Ryan but with planes. yeah yeah I, guess, yeah I guess I guess yeah. Or yeah 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 so yeah I don't I forget where Dunkirk was wasn't that near the end of the war I forget I no Dunkirk was was at the beginning when uh, the the British. Before the war started, the British had an expeditionary force in France. Oh, right. And, okay. and when the Nazis invaded France and overran France basically faster than anyone expected, the British force was trapped. Right. They're, yeah, the they're, trying to get, mm. they're trying to get off the onto a boat or something like that. Yeah. Right. So they went to Dunkirk, which is which is like the point that's one of the closest points to England. And they were just kind of stuck there waiting for someone to come pick them up. And they eventually oh, they did. They got them out. They got them out. Yeah. Yeah, because in the in the preview, there's like a a father and his son and a friend are are helping launch their fishing boat, mm-hmm. you know, and they've got all these these uh, uh, life jackets and you know they're like we're going to go over and pick up a couple of British you know uh, mm-hmm. soldiers, right? And there's a stack of like fifty life jackets, mm-hmm. <laughs> like where are they going to put all these guys, kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so right. it was kind of interesting, interesting little list, like it just you know within within like what a you know two three minute preview, it was awesome. So. Mm. I think I know which movie you're talking about. Yeah, I have seen that preview. It's called um, Dunkirk. <laughs> Dunkirk. Yeah. Well, I mean, the name sounded familiar, but when you started describing the, oh, the guys are caught behind enemy lines and they're they're trying to get out. Uh, I kind of remember what that looks like now. I was I thinking mean, at first of a totally different movie, and it was the one with um, Andrew Garfield, where he's the the medic and he joins the military, but he doesn't want to use a gun. Yeah, and there's a full 3D preview of. Um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy two, so that's kind of something to look forward to. I still well. haven't seen the first one. Really, yeah. it's a good movie. Yeah. It's it's kind of quirky, but it's it's actually very funny, very entertaining. I was waiting for it to come out on cable, and I kind of never did. Really, <laughs> or, or I missed no, it. I missed it. It's, no, it's on Netflix. It is. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Okay. it is here up in Canada anyway. Yeah. Oh, on that's the, a good uh, question. I the streaming one or the disc or the CD one? The streaming or the one. The DVD one. Streaming one. Okay. There's a DVD yeah. one still. <laughs> Yeah, you can still get the DVD one. Yeah, no, I'm I'm talking about the streaming. We get different content than you guys do because of that yeah, CRC yeah. that Ami was talking about earlier. Yeah, there's sort of there's some rules about import and licensing and blah blah blah. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I can't believe be you guys there. get The Force Awakens on your Netflix and we don't. Oh yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. For yeah. Months. And I, you know, yeah, I have it on my iPad and I have it on my Netflix. What can I say? Hmm. Well, let's put it this way: we have this thing. I don't know if you have these things called super tickets down in the states, but they started these up here where. Uh, you get a code on your ticket, so if you pay, like you pay for the movie, then you get a you get a ability to da- get a download of the movie when it comes out for like twenty dollars Canadian, which is like five five dollars American, right? Wow. Uh, yeah. I don't think we <laughs> Wait, have hold that. On, hold on. Like, it sounds cool, but I want to make sure because you said something that makes me think it it's different. So, for the ticket price, I get no, the it, on download. top of on top of the ticket price. On top of the ticket, you pay, price. you pay the ticket price. You pay your here. This one was like uh, thirteen ninety nine, and you get a uh-huh. code at the bottom, which lets you get for twenty dollars a download of the movie. I don't normally go for that, but because it's Star Wars, duh. I'm still kind of puzzled because isn't that normal retail price? 
Um, no, in, no, it, it probably it would probably be like twenty nine dollars once it comes out on disc or whatever. I don't know what it is. On uh, okay. iTunes. So it's at a yeah. discount price. Okay, okay. That, yeah, that it's, makes sense. it's it's probably like you know twenty or thirty percent off. Where's my mouse? Hang on. I'm going to okay, iTunes. cool. Like, I can definitely um, I can definitely go for that then. Yeah, I don't um, know. Do they have that in the states at all? Or I don't think I've seen that on any oh. movie tickets. Um, yeah. Now the closest analogy I can think of is. Uh, like Blu-ray sets will typically come with um, like iTunes or Google Play or uh, Ultraviolet. Right. Yeah, yeah, loads. downloads exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. the I think the like this is Cineplex, which is our our um, movie theater franchise thing up here. They went around and bought all the theaters, but um, um, AMC just bought Carmike and somebody else. I don't think it was, they, they they did it throughout the the world. I guess they've been snatching up all the different theaters and and i think they had to give up a few of them because of uh conflicts there so here force awakens for me in to buy in high def on itunes is 24.99 so it's like getting five bucks off if you will if you look and think about it that way and usually most of these things most of the discs that i most of the downloads i get are you know it's it's usually an itunes code right Mm. yeah yeah so so you're not getting the uh, the extended the extended version with the extra scenes or any of that right no, so well, it's funny though, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe because I didn't realize yeah, it when I bought uh, my uh, when I got the I have the Force Awakens because I bought the disc on my um, my iPad. I didn't realize all the extra content was in there too, like the behind the scenes. Mm. There's a special uh, iTunes only, you know, documentary on there as well, right? So, oh, really? Yeah. So usually, what they do is they they uh, sell the theatrical release first, get everybody to buy a copy, and then a year later. They sell the extended yeah. version, so everybody yeah. has to buy it again, right? Yeah, so so that's what Jonathan and I do. Jonathan, he's my son, that likes Star Wars. Um, so I'll buy the movie, and then he'll wait for the 3D or the extended whatever come out, or he'll buy both too. Like, <laughs> so in the family we have it. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we usually get like a physical Blu-ray disc so we can share it. Yeah. And it's and and you don't actually make a rip a copy of it. No, you don't do that. No, 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 no. that no. would be bad. No, no. Why, Ian, why bother? I mean, like, that, who would mean I have to get the dust off my super drive and plug it in? And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of effort, extra effort when everything's available online these days. Well, that's true. Yeah, I'd, 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 have to, I'd have to go to, like, Fry's and buy a damn $20 external drive because I don't have one on my laptop. I'm looking at my, my wall of CDs that I've had since since I was start, first started buying CDs, which was probably yeah 25 or 30 years ago, whenever it was. Yeah. And man, I got hundreds of them. That did you ever have any of those deteriorate on you? No. Like, well, you know? I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Because you know, uh, you know that the, the early discs they had this issue they where had this lifetime, yeah, this, yeah, they, they, they would yeah. holes would start to appear in the in the the nickel on the inside. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to check. The, the thing is, I never listen to the CDs anymore because I've I've copied it all onto yeah. you know, a digital. Well, to a, well, not digital. But it's all digital, but. But yeah. onto my computer into iTunes, so so I ne- I have all these CDs that I never listened to, but I don't want, really want to throw them away because it was a long time in collecting them all. So it's quite possible that yeah. some of the old ones don't don't even play anymore. It's quite possible. I don't know. I think my, all of my CDs are in a box in the garage. It's a shame though, because you know. Yeah, you miss out on the on the album art at the very least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the liner well, notes notes were, were great. You don't get that with iTunes. Like it's not. You can't just thumb through and be like, "Oh man, look, look at the cover for um, In Utero or something from Nirvana." It used to be that 
that when you met somebody new and you went to the house the first time, the first thing you did was you checked out their music collection, right? Yeah, for because, sure. You flipped through because music cost money. And you couldn't get everything like you can now. So, so the music that a person chose to buy told you something about that person, right? Yeah, it was a scarce resource, and how did yeah. they decide to expend that resource? Yeah, yeah, and and now it's like, oh, my my iTunes has you know. 14 terabytes of, of music that, that I've never even listened to. But I can't I share with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm removing yeah, something. Like, I'm like, damn it. Why does this YouTube thing, YouTube thing keep coming back? And yep. man, I really regret getting this free Depeche Mode download from Starbucks <laughs> because it was a new song and I don't like their new song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't remember all the discs that used to have the CD-ROM playable stuff on them. Like I had some Peter Gabriel right. stuff. And That's right. Yeah. Tubular, yeah. Tubular Bells had some sort of like, and it was only, it'll only run on a classic Mac kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the oh man, the the what did, they called them something. Um, there was a marketing term for it where it yeah. had videos and stuff. Yeah, and I remember there was a Celine Dion. She was the first artist I think that had a, and it was a Sony disc that was the, one of the first ones you couldn't copy. Like it would, it would had some sort of software on it that would prevent you from making a rip, ripping the ripping the music off of it. Yeah, but I was going to ask you guys that they use the the little black marker on the rim to um to black out that part. Oh really? Hmm. Maybe. I don't know if it, it's almost certainly Wait, somebody likes like so. I always thought the uh, the the black marker on the rim was to quote improve the sound quality. Do you remember that? <laughs> that's no, what the, never, that's what people used to say. Black marker on the rim. I've never seen that. You've never heard of this? No. Yeah, yeah. It used to, it used to. I mean, it, it made no sense at all. But it used to be used to be that people would 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 just uh, you know black out the whole edge of the of the CD. And they were convinced that it improved the sound because some of the, I don't know, I guess some of the light would escape otherwise. <laughs> and this kept all the light inside. I don't know. Oh, yeah, because yeah. that makes total sense when it's binary, right? Right, 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 yeah. right, right. Wow. So yeah. I was going to ask you guys, aren't, aren't record players, aren't like the audio files coming back into play now? Like up here, yeah. um, there's record stores or the ones that the ones that hung on to the old classic records are, yeah. are booming now. And, and now you go into, I, it's funny, I go into like a, a record place like HMB or whatever, and I see a disc that I bought when I was 14 for like 10 bucks yeah. now costs 40. Yeah. Yeah. I, heard, I just heard this recently and, and was shocked when I heard it, but the vinyl industry actually has higher revenues than the CD industry now. Currently, yeah? Yeah. So people aren't buying yeah, it because... Because nobody buys CDs. They just... Everyone who used to buy CDs just buys it digitally now. Uh, and people buy vinyl, who buy vinyl, are, are buying vinyl for a different reason. Well, they're buying it because uh, the, the difference in sound, right? Clearly. That's what they well, say. There's that. There's nostalgia, and there's, right? If and you, there's the hipster you the, aspect. The hipster, yeah. And yeah, yeah. The, the hipster one is the one... That it gets the new releases on vinyl. Like, like yeah, you know, they yeah. never made a vinyl record of this, but this band came out in 2010. What are you talking about? Right. There's no way there's a vinyl <laughs> edition for this. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it's that album art stuff. Like getting a whole bunch of like I don't know, like Megadeth kind of stuff, and, and putting that on your wall would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. One of my, one of my clients is uh, named Sarah Sleen, and she's pretty f- a popular singer up here. She probably would never do a concert with Bucket Buckethead, but um, <laughs> she she actually when she started recording, it was all done on you know in the studio with all that kind of stuff, and 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 you know actually making physical albums. And she went through the whole transition, through the whole Napster thing, through the whole 
you know, now it's on CD, now now it's on iTunes. And her second last disc, when I when I first met her, she she was just in the studio making a, a new album, and she actually gave me a vinyl disc of her of her latest album, her double album. So wow. Kind of of course, you have nothing it. to play it on, right? Or do you still? Have I have nothing to play it on. Yeah, yeah. yeah I should have. Yeah. Next time I see her, I should get her to sign it or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but it's funny that to sort of see her go through her whole career, and and we interviewed her on on Roundabout if people are interested, but Sarah Sleen. But um, yeah, it's uh, it or I think Tammy interviewed her. I can't remember if I was on the show or not, but um. Yeah, and it was interesting to sort of go through that whole thing and, and sort of talk to her, to her and other artists that I've met or, or you know about how much they get from iTunes and that kind of stuff. So you know, the secret is if you really want to support an artist and you go see them in a concert, buy the record at the venue because that's when the artist gets mm. the most money from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, or buy the T-shirts as well. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Like, is it the T-shirts? Is it the album? Yeah. Or, or just make... go to the show these days. I mean, the, the, yeah, that's the price revenue of concerts is, has skyrocketed the past few years yeah for sure yeah i'm going to see roger waters like next year if i, I am too yeah i've broken my i've broken my uh 25 year moratorium on you know never supporting roger waters <laughs> yeah yeah i'm or breaking yeah. up pink floyd you know oh yeah that one yeah there's, and also tom yeah there's other reasons people boycott roger waters these days uh, well that too that too yeah <laughs> oh yeah the other side of it too yeah that's, that's just a weird angle i'm not gonna go into that one but, yeah, yeah but i'm also going to see tom petty as he's doing i oh. missed him i missed him last year when he came through yeah, but yeah this is his 40th anniversary this year so wow yeah how much were the roger waters tickets that you got too much years? too much yeah mine too mine too yeah. yeah yeah like it was what i what i paid for sting and and uh Tragically hip, it was it was ridiculous. But you know, it's like one of these you know last chance scene before right before bucket was... list bucket list guy exactly yeah. Then yeah. then my Pink Floyd collection is complete, right? Yeah, <laughs> I've seen all of them all of them at the same time. You know, I've seen a couple of Monty Python guys live. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I saw Roger Waters on the Radio Chaos tour. Oh my God, that must have been horrible. It wasn't terrible because it wasn't it wasn't terrible because he played Radio Chaos I think all the way through or more or less, and then the second set was all Big Floyd stuff. Ah, uh, right, okay, yeah. So it, was, so it wasn't bad. Yeah, I have a, I have a disc of his of him doing a lot of like you know Animals is my favorite album and yeah. I have some of him doing some of that stuff. But yeah, uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, go I ahead. Forgot to mention that uh, yes is now a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't hear that. When just, they this, getting, just this week. They just they got inducted were, or they, they got announced? Just, just elected. Oh, I don't okay, think the induction cool. has happened, but they were finally elected after all these years. Huh. Yeah, I saw, I saw something about, because uh, I'm on one of their fan club mailing things, and they sent me a thing to vote for them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I went to look at the list of artists that were being in there, they weren't the only artist I would have voted for. So I, I think I abstained. Oh, oh you can only <laughs> choose one? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I think so. Huh. I don't know. So ELO was also elected. Oh, from that same group? Yeah, that's, that's yeah, 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 another one. Yep, Jeff Lynn, big fan of his. Yeah. It is, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's just my own bias, but I think it's kind of a shame, kind of a travesty maybe that that it took, well, that ELO got elected in the same yeah. amount of time that YES got elected, right? YES should have been right. elected way before in my, yeah, well, in yeah, my yeah. ranking of things, but... Whatever, yeah. yeah. Well, they're a bit schizophrenic, though. Yep. Yeah. And and yes, has been a you know actively touring band all along, so that might actually True. that might actually uh, hurt their chances of getting in. Well, did they? Or I mean, because they were had that sort of lull there before I saw them in ninety or or when did I see them in the nineties? I guess. 
Yeah, but but since then they've been they've been regularly, yeah. And now there's two different bands touring. <laughs> is there? Yeah, yeah. There's so there's the the band actually using the name Yes, which is Steve Howe and yeah. Andy White. If he's not sick, he was sick the last time they toured right. here. So there was a guest right. drummer. Uh, and uh, you know John Davison, the substitute yeah. guy, um, yeah. and and uh, the the new bassist to replace Chris Squire, and, and Jeff yeah. Downs, I think, is is still. With I think them. I told you that John Davison went to, went to school or something like that with Taylor Hawkins, the drummer from uh, Foo Fighters. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so, and so one one day Foo Fighters was in, last year when Dave Grohl broke his leg and they were on that broken leg tour. Mm-hmm. Um, John Davison showed up and they played Tom Sawyer. Oh, oh, yeah, you told me about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. and John yeah. Davidson sang the part for, for that. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.